listening to the Retro Guardians. Okay, now what? Buckle up. It's time to kick ass and chew bubble gum. And I'm all out of gum. Groovy. Little Hand says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. Hasta la vista, baby. Retro Guardians. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Retro Guardians. I'm Ben. I'm Jay. And this week I thought we might go into something that we touched upon earlier in our episode about American Werewolf in London and Howling. And that was the beginning at the end of the 70s of the explosion of makeup effects artists. Now, there had only been a few before that that sort of uh, got a bit of a notice and that was people like John Chambers, who did the original Planet of the Apes makeups, as well as Mr. Spock's ears for Star Trek, and a few other handful of people. But what began in the very early 70s was this sort of slow but steady rise of makeup effects artists. And that really began with a guy named Dick Smith, and Dick did The Exorcist. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ compels you. And um, while he was working on The Exorcist, he had hired a very young assistant named Rick Baker. Now, Rick, I had mentioned earlier in the episode about American Wolf in London, and Rick is really the beginning of a person and an identity that you began to associate with makeup effects. Now, Rick did several little horror films in the early 70s and called Octoman. You did hear me say that correctly. It has many different titles. But also he worked for a guy, um, another sort of B-schlock meister guy named Larry Colin, who me and Jay grew up with with several movies he'd written. And in the very early 80s, uh, sorry, 70s, he'd written this film called It's Alive. And at the time, Rick was living at Dick Smith's house trying to get um, The Exorcist done, and Larry somehow had tracked him down and hired him to do a murderous killer baby. And uh, he didn't want to see the baby. He said, but I need something to put in its place so the actors can re- react to it. So he says, all right, all right. And he, he did it sort of on the fly. When Larry seen it, he flipped out, and he's like, I love this thing. This is awesome. He's like, oh, great. He goes, let's shoot a scene with it. He goes, no, 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 it doesn't move. You said you didn't want it to move or do anything. Well, I, I like it more than I thought I would. Well, let's let's do a scene with it. So he projected the scene that he, he described he wanted, and he goes, well, what if I made a suit? I could put over, like a, like a head piece, I could put over an actor, and then we could put like uh, like a hand extensions on its hands, and that's that's the only part, we do it in the dark. And that scene became so effective, it, he started to get a lot more jobs as a result of that. And one of the next big jobs that he got, Dino De Laurentiis wanted him to do King Kong for the 1976 version of Kong. Now, slowly and steadily, with the advent of this film that every one of us knows and talks about when it comes to science fiction, Star Wars. George Lucas was unhappy with uh, the Cantina sequence as it was shot in England, so he decided to do a reshoot in California, but they only built like a bit of the wall in one of the counters, and that's how they filmed all the insert scenes for the Cantina sequence. And then it was really literally no money he had an assistant at the time, which was, believe it or not, would become Rob Team, 
I'll get into him a little later. And they literally, I think they only filmed it over a day or two, and they grabbed whatever mask or whatever appliance stuff they had, and they filmed what they did on the fly. And once you assert that in editing and put music over it, it became one of the most memorable scenes in the whole film, and it's still to this day talked about. So what this began to do with the big popularity of some of these films that it became to become not B movies, but A movies that every producer in town was like, all right, we need best of the best. And that's when it started to steamroll into more and more people getting into the makeup effects art of films. Now, at that time, there was no schools. There was no, uh, and and people weren't willing to share their uh, secrets Dick on the, Smith, on the other hand, was willing to do that. So in the early 70s and late 60s, you had mo- famous monsters magazines, and a few of them would actually put out articles about how to do that. Now, one other guy I've got to mention of this period is Tom Savini. Tom Savini is the king of splatter. He was the beginning of the slasher boom. Tom worked on the original Dawn of the Dead. I've just been informed that we are going off the air and switching to the emergency broadcasting system. And then from Dawn of the Dead, uh, Sean S. Cunningham, the director of Friday the 13th, saw it and said, we've got to get this guy to do the effects for our little film, which would become the original Friday the 13th. And that was the beginning of this boom. It was late 70s, and then you had a lot more teenagers that were being assistants at the time that started to work their way up into the industry. So we get to 1981, the two films that we mentioned earlier in the show, American Werewolf in London and The Howling. Rick Baker was hired originally to do The Howling, and they had gotten pretty much underway halfway through the film when John Landis had finally got approval and the money to do American Werewolf in London. Now, 10 years earlier, one of Rick's first films with John was a film called Schlock, which was a gorilla banana monster movie it was shot in two weeks it's actually the director in the suit because they couldn't afford anyone else to do it and he had proposed to him and the pitch for american wolf in london so when the time came that he finally got the money he said to rick you you made a promise to me so rick left the howling but he has a credit in the howling as consultant and then went straight from that into american wolf in london now, his assistant at the time, Rob team stayed on and did The Howling, and that was the, really the beginning of that. A year earlier, Robert work, worked on The Fog for John Carpenter. There's a famous sequence with the seaweed men, and Rob's actually the main guy. And team at the time, I think he was very tall. I think he was over six foot something. And so he did the main character. We don't hear them talk. We just see them as sort of eerie and spooky. And he worked on a few films for Roger Corman as well in the in the late um, 70s. But then this big boom happened with not just the slasher films, but with the sci-fi films. And that began the period of that uh, makeup effects artists became rock stars. And you had guys like Stan Winston coming out of that. Definitely Robert Team, as I mentioned earlier. Definitely uh, guys later like Greg Canham, Mark Shokstrom. Definitely... Um, Kevin Yeager as well and uh, it just slowly snowballed into a viable industry where you could have not only a a career but you could make a financial career out of it as well so when I think of some of these films um, you have to talk about what works what doesn't work what actually is needed I mean that's what a lot of these guys had to sit down and physically figure out now Rick had invented this sort of bladder technique with the skin bubbled and that was utilized in a lot of films in that very early 
Christmas period. And sometimes they worked for a film and sometimes they didn't. And said maestro that I mentioned earlier, he was hired for a few films. And specifically, Dick Smith had worked on the original Exorcist. He'd worked on the original Godfather. He'd worked on Taxi Driver. And then in the early 80s, he I think he did Altered States, the Ken Russell film with William Hurt. That has a whole heap of situations that even I'm like... Oh, that works so well in that film. And then he also did some aging makeups as well, like he'd done in Little Big Men. He'd done one for Amadeus, I think, which was 1984, and that was the only time he ever won an Oscar, this man. So when the Oscar for Best Makeup Effects came through, it was in 1981, and it was won by um, Rick for American Werewolf in London. And I believe over the years, he's won over six or seven Oscars for that um for makeup effects, he's the he's the main one. I mean, there's other guys later like Stan Winston as well that and Rob as well that won ones specifically. But I do know Rick has the record, and I don't think that's ever going to be broken. So, Jay, do you have any movies specifically of that period where it stands out to you with the makeup effects? Mm, that's a good question. Um, okay, I'm thinking maybe. Hmm. Give me what time? What time period? Give late, me a, late seventies to late eighties. Anything yeah. in there doesn't matter. I'm probably the main thing that sort of sticks in my head is um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, I, I can't remember the man's name off the top of my head, mm. but I believe he'd done Thriller for Michael Jackson. He'd yeah. literally just come off the Thriller. Um, music video um i can't remember his name off the top of my head just give me a moment folks yeah and i think the main thing for me like why that one sticks in my head is just mainly because of how grotesque freddie looked and like the intricacies in the makeup that they had to do for that and then all the costumes you know that torn jumper he was wearing the actual sets themselves um yeah i don't know that i think that one's just sort of the main one that's sort of comes to mind for me well, the funny thing about the um, the original design for Freddy, if I remember correctly, I'm just trying to find this gentleman's name. I can't remember. It's been that long. It was uh, D- uh, D- David Shannon. It was something like that. I'll I'll get ripped later by a fan ringing me up to tell me off about that. But but he'd had he'd been eating a pizza. He was at some little pizzeria and he started organ. It was a pepperoni pizza and he started organising. The pizza, and that's mm. how he come up with the design for Freddy's um, yeah, makeup. Yeah, it looks like a pizza, doesn't it? Yeah, and then the makeup had to, he had to have it for a, a full month period, so they had to make multiple ones in that, and in the early days, it was not as easy to get off and on as it is now, and it was that sort of, yeah, and they had to, he, I remember Robert saying in an interview, they had to base me like a turkey originally to get the makeups on and off. Hmm. Yeah, what about... What's the main one that stands out for you? What's your number one? There's a few. Um, I definitely got to mention... It's not so much um, grotesque, but I have to mention that first Terminator. I really do. Yeah. And that was Stan Winston. And that was the first film I ever saw Stan Winston do it. And it's the sequence with Arnold takes the eye out. The, the face has been damaged after the shoot. Now, there was animatronics used in there, but later sequences in the movie, he's got sort of a bit of more of the melted sort of face look off. He's missing yeah. bits, bits of flesh off him. They really pioneered that into, uh, perfected it by Terminator 2. But even in yeah. the first movie, that really stood out to me like, 
holy crap, you really believe there's a machine under there. And T2 had um, quite the um, new modern age CG, didn't it, with yeah. the um, T1000. T1, so one of the things that I was also going to get into that Jay sort of mentioned too, I believe that the use of effects is a marriage. It's it's 50-50. If you rely too heavily on one or the other, I don't think it works as much. So I do like the fact that a lot of filmmakers are of the mindset, whatever works, we're going to use. Now, CG was still in its early infancy at that time period, so they used a lot of matte shots. They used a lot of perspective shots, um, force perspective shots sorry was the word i meant and models and everything and that really you know it was literally of that heyday of that late sort of mid to late 80s to early 90s period and then once the big boom after jurassic park happened that's when a lot of makeup effects guys actually closed up shop and decided to finish their careers one in particular guy i got to mention is a guy named chris wales chris did the gremlins chris did the original fly makeups for cronenberg's the fly and he had a sense by Jurassic Park it was time to end. Mm. And he closed up his shop. And I'm, I'm, I'm really upset that a lot of these guys sadly believed it was the end of them and they gave up. Why did why'd they think that? Because they thought they would be out of a job. Uh, sadly, a lot of the um, miniature guys, stop motion guys, like um, Phil Tibbet and Dave Allen literally saw Jurassic Park as the end of their careers. Really? Because mm. so Jurassic Park was sort of the first of the big CG movies, wasn't it? Yeah, and at that time period, they thought they couldn't do it. Well, a couple of the guys at ILM just went and did a test, and that changed the whole movie. They'd hired Tibbet to do the, the dinosaurs uh, stop motion, but when he saw that footage, he got depressed. He yeah. went into a deep depression. Dennis Muren, who's one of the main guys at ILM, said, I can't get rid of this guy. This guy's a big part of getting this movie made. So how do you sort of champion him and get him back into the zone? But a lot of these guys felt when they saw... Jurassic Park and Terminator 2, the CG effects was, this is the end of me. And I remember specifically um, Steve Johnson. Steve was another later uh, prodigy assistant of Rick Baker. Steve did the aliens in the abyss. And Steve spent said he spent something like six plus months trying to figure out how to make them work in water and this and that. And he said, what does everyone talk about? The living water sequence, the water snake, which is only in the movie less than a couple of minutes. And he said, I spent six bloody months blah 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 and so some of them were not happy with that some of them were getting a bit anxious and worried and concerned that this was the end of them and a lot of them learned to work with it so when uh t2 got a bit more of a hype because of the digital effects rather than the special effects what stan winston did he didn't go into a deep depression he bought stocks and helped form digital domain which is now one of the biggest special effects companies in the world there were a few of those guys that figured it out more like a marriage but a lot of them no they just couldn't see them competing in that and sadly only a few of the big shops are still around um after stan winston died in 2008 they renamed his company legacy effects which are responsible for a lot of the marvel movies nowadays and i think they did the effects in the recent new dunes but they are still using the same techniques that they used from the 70s and 80s periods so stan had got hired to do terminator and they used a lot of uh, the original movie. There was it was stop motion used. There was uh, puppets. There was models. There was used everything to get that film made. By T two, they had a much bigger budget, so they were able to expand on the effects. And I heard Cameron say in an, in an interview recently that they did use an early motion capture to do some of the T one thousand stuff. 
And even I sit there and think both a positive and a negative. Now, my love of all this comes from Star Wars. First and foremost. Now, a lot of these people have put their hand up and said out loud, without Star Wars, a lot of us wouldn't be here, both from a digital and um, practical standpoint as well. So a lot of these guys, whether they worked on these films or not, they acknowledged them. And I've heard a lot of them talk about that it kept them on their toes, what other people were doing. It wasn't competition. It was like, okay, if they're doing that, what can we do with that? Oh, we're going to use this. We're going to do this and that. Wait, you used yak hair to do that? How did it work? So films like Predator, films like Harry and the Henderson, it is a guy in a suit. In this case, the same guy, Kevin Peter Hall. But using the idea of using animatronics as well as practical makeup effects, that was pioneered in the early 80s as well. Rob Bird team used a lot of those effects on the thing as well. And I believe when Tom Savini was getting ready to make uh, Creep Show with George Romero in 82, uh, Tom had never done animatronics. He literally never done it. Now, when he went to make Friday the 13th, he actually went and seen Dick Smith to ask him about his blood formula to get the blood right. Dick, on the spot, gave him the recipe, and it's a recipe he used for the rest of that period. Well, when was he was getting... Corn syrup? Yes, corn syrup and a mixture of a few yep. other things. And then you had... Um, he rang Robbo team after... As he'd heard about what they were doing with the thing. He explained he had to make this puppet, which became fluffy in the episode, The Thing in the Crate which is an episode you know really well. And he, literally over the phone, Rob went, okay, this is what you do. And he walked him through the whole process of building an animatronic puppet over the phone. You didn't have that back then. You didn't have schools. You didn't have the internet. It was literally word of mouth. And the wonderful thing about a lot of these people, they were happy to share these techniques. They were happy to do this. Yeah, and so it's changed a lot now. Everyone's keeping everything secret and want to charge everyone for it. So when they get ready to make the second Nightmare on Elm Street, the said legend, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, um, he couldn't do that. He was on another project. So Kevin Yeager stepped up. Kevin's another guy that would go into animatronics really well, practical effects. Kevin had done a makeup on a friend of his and made him look like an old man and got him to sit in a park and feed pigeons. He showed that to um, Bob Shea, who was running New Line at the time. And... Uh, Bob was so impressed with him, he hired him on the spot. And and he um, one of the things that Kevin later did was Kevin made Freddy look more like a witch, like a male witch, so he had more of a hook nose. And the big thing that Kevin asked for was he made him change his contacts to make him look more like a devil kind of you know, evil, eerie eye things. So after that point in time, Freddy always had those kind of eye looks, if you really look at his eyes in the second film. And that was Kevin. And Kevin worked on several of the nightmares, including part three, which is probably the film everyone remembers the most. That film utilised so many makeup effects guys, including Mark Showstrom, including himself, including Greg Cannon. And I believe the early K&B guys worked on that one as well. And that was like an effects-heavy movie to this day. That If you want to sit down and look at every technique that you can make to make a movie, you just look at the sec third nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors. Okay. And a lot of the guys began their careers off that. Well, Kevin went on to do the original Child's Play. Kevin was one of the first guys to sit down and look at practical effects as well as animatronics. And the early Chucky doll, it wasn't 
properly 100% yet, but it was the beginning of animatronics on that level. And I believe the same doll they used for Chucky, they used for the original Crypt Keeper at the first two seasons of Tales from the Crypt. So they're not, it's not moving as much, if you notice, in the differences between the films, because techniques only come from experience and and experience leads to other things and that's what a lot of that period was it was finding things experimenting this and that trying different things and as time went on i do believe it got better cool no i think that's um it's a good a very good snapshot of the special effects industry and i think um like you say the whole premise of cg has made it probably a little bit of a lazy man's tool i think there's always going to be a market for it producers prefer things to be quick and easy Mm. makeup effects and this is something i've heard from many of the filmmakers at that time they're worth it but they're costly and time consuming yeah producers do not like those words (laughs) that's a fair fact and i think a lot of people agree with me so what do you do when um you've got one person you've got to please and then you've got the person that's holding the checkbook yeah do what they want keep them happy Yep. So, is there any other movies that you can think of, Jay, that with the makeup effects that you, or sort of stand out to you? Mm, look, that's probably the, my my main one that just comes to my head straight away. Um, I'm just trying to think what else. And the, I mean, the old classics like we spoke about the other week, American Werewolf in London. All right. Well, um, I'll give an example of that then, and I think I mentioned this mm. earlier. Landis knew making that that was going to be the most consi- time-consuming part of it, so he knew to spend a full week on the um, the makeup effects um, of that sequence. They spent a whole week. David Miller, that's the man I've just been trying to think of for ages. David did the original Nightmare on Elm Street makeup and yeah. thriller makeups for Michael Jackson. I'm sorry about that, folks. He's been bugging, just, and it just came to me then. But to go back to it, you had a period of time where people were starting to experiment with uh, certain um, appliances. You had a period of time that you could make skin look more uh, believable. Like I said, that bladder effect that Rick really developed. And um, a lot of those techniques came out of Werewolf. Like I said, there's a sequence where the legs, the feet extend. And I got queasy. I've heard I wasn't the only one that got a little queasy when you saw that. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Yeah, the um, the change our heads thing that's a big one that became a big thing with the with the with the horror films of the eighties. The head would start out normal and suddenly grow yeah. and morph into other things, and I just think it was a, a sort of like a a magician sh- um, playing performing an act for people. I think for some people that time period, like I said, this is there's no CGI, there's no internet, there's none of this. There's no YouTube videos. There's no TikTok videos. It was this. If you wanted to see something different, you had to check out some of these films. And I think I remember us, um, when we were a lot younger, experimenting with our little handheld video camera, trying to make our own or replicate some special effects based on the recipes that were given in the makings and stuff. And I think I remember one quite clearly where we actually experimented with a a gunshot wound on how to make it. And we've... um, 
We've used one of those garden pumps, you know, like the weed spray things, and we've run a pipe and a hose up behind a, a white shirt, and you had the pressure all ready to go, and you'd simulate a gunshot wound and release the valve, and you'd get a nice little blood squirt come out of the uh, out of the pipe, you know, water and red food colouring. It looked pretty cool. I mean, we never did anything with it. We were just mucking around. Tom Savini invented the effect of blood splatter gunshots, yeah. and it was actually a condom full of that, the KY syrup thing we yeah. talked about earlier. But the scary part was the, the headshots. Mm. Now, what they used to do in the old days, Tom sort of did this. He used to put a metal plate behind the actor's head and put the charge on the other side. If anyone's ever seen uh, Full Metal Jacket, the famous gunshot head wound in that, that's how they did that. It's the mm. same way. It's just too risky. And Tom was always worried about, uh, especially with the head, you had to be yeah. very careful with that. But with um, with machine gun fires, you have to have a device where you have to push it sort of almost like an accordion mm. to do gunshots. And Tom was really a big pioneer for those kind of effects. And then as we got into the action films of that period, that became the norm. And I remember movies like um, Robocop. It's just full of big splatter gunshot wounds. And that was Rob doing a lot of those effects too and said the same thing about how you, how you would actually do that. Actually, I've got another one, um, The Living Dead. So not uh, maybe not so much Night of Living Dead because it was old, but older. The Day of the Living Dead, where yeah. there was the you know the, the zombies ripping all the intestines out and uh, disemboweling so, people. To to go into that quickly, Tom Savini did the original Dawn of the Dead. Now they'll complain about that, and most people will tell you this truth: they didn't get the blood coloring right, and the zombies. Nah. The zombie skin wasn't right yet. No, the skin looked fake. Yeah, but yeah. once we get to Day, I think Day is Tom's grand swan song. Yeah. They were rotten. They'd been around a while. They did, every, you know, they, they literally were like skin fleshes and bits mm. and pieces hanging off you. And Tom used to use real guts. That's what I heard him say in an interview. <laughs> no, no, pig intestines yeah, and yeah, things yeah. like this. There's a famous sequence where one of the villains gets ripped to pieces. Now, what's really sad and scary and also terrifying about this sequence they had shot that close to Christmas, so they'd taken a week off for Christmas. When they got back from Christmas, they realised someone had unplugged no. the freezer no. and all the guts had gone off, but oh, they didn't have no. enough time to run down and get more guts. Oh, they didn't. They use did. Them. Oh. And there's a sequence when he's ripped, and I know for a fact that several of the zombies in the <laughs> sequence actually put earplugs um, e up their noses so the smell mm. wouldn't get to them. I think, well, I can't... I think of the actor's name, but when the sequence was over, everyone ran into the sequence to, to wave the smell away from his nose because he's nearly passing out. So there's a rotten look on his face in that sequence, and that's why. Mm. Yeah, that, that was Tom really flexing his muscles the most. I think Day Dawn of the Dead proved that you could make that work, but Day was like, let's be a bit more, let's see what we can really do with this. Yeah. But there's several of the zombies in, in Day, especially Bub's makeup and that too, that really stand out to me, and I agree with you on that. Yeah. Tom did a lot of films with George Romero of that period, and that also became a norm too, that you had makeup effects guys specifically working with direct filmmakers. So Stan Winston did a lot of things with James Cameron. Um, Tom Savini, as I mentioned, did a lot of things with um, with George Romero. And then also I think he worked with Joe Zito, who worked on Friday the 13th Part 4 and Missing in Action and Invasion USA. I think he did some of the effects on one or two of those films. 
So if you have a good working relationship with someone, you want to work with them the most. And I mean, I could point out people like uh, definitely Tim Burton. Tim's worked with both Stan Winston and Rick Baker on, on multiple occasions. John Landis has worked with Rick Baker on multiple occasions. Um, I have to point out Eddie's makeups in the original Coming to America. Rick and John were the first to say, what if we can make Eddie look like multiple characters? Eddie Murphy is without a doubt a, mm. a student and a scholar of Jerry Lewis, yeah. especially his films in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, movies like um, The Original Nutty Professor, as well as uh, Family Jewels was a favourite where he plays the whole fa- every member of the family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I figured they figured out, let's really let Eddie go, and it was Rick that really did the designs differently. Now, Eddie actually plays a white guy in that movie, mm. and when the studio saw it, they went, no, 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 no. We want him to look like Eddie. We want people to know it's Eddie. You can't do these too many. We're happy with this. So a couple of the characters were closely more resembling Eddie, like the the um, barbershop guys and that, and they were deliberately done to look more like him and Arsenio Hall. He played mm. the other opposites. But the Jewish old man was actually based on Rick Baker's father-in-law at the time. And if you see him, and I mean, the voice gives it away. As soon as you hear it, I'm like, that's Eddie. I don't care. That's Eddie Murphy in that role. And I heard that to do the test, Rick did him up on the Paramount lot. And then Eddie spent three hours walking around the lot just saying hello to people and flirting with secretaries. They didn't know it was Eddie Murphy. Oh, wow. So Eddie did this thing after that when he did multiple roles. He did this on Nutty Professor 2. He'd walk off the lots Mm. and go up and say hello and and mingle with people. He did it on Vampire in Brooklyn as well Mm. when he was in different makeups. (laughs) And I thought that's very free. And that just tells you how good a job these guys were good at doing that. Yeah. And like I said, they couldn't have done that at the start of the 80s. That would not have worked at the start. It had to be the end in the early 90s as well. Rick won Oscars for both Coming to America and uh, Nutty Professor, I believe, for turning Eddie into those characters. Mm. I mean, that just tells you the impressiveness of that. Yeah. And then um, I'm just trying to think of other people of that period too. Well, Chris Wales is someone I've got to mention. I mentioned him earlier. Chris actually worked on Return of the Jedi, and he also worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark. He did the famous scene when they opened the Ark of the Covenant and melts everyone. Chris did all that. And I believe he did stuff on Robocop 2 as well. But I have to mention Gremlins. I can't sit here and not talk about the puppets of Gremlins. Now, I heard in a recent interview with Joe Dante, he said it was the most straining, tiresome job he ever did because they had to invent the technology and do the R&D for it while they were making the movie and that film was only 10 million dollars and they really 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 said it really pushed everyone to the limit i mean i believe while they were making the movie they sent all the actors on on break for a month to do gremlin effects i mean that's how tedious and long some of these effects took to do and i mean he's even said out loud that doing the sequence in the bar was one of the hardest things to do because you had all these puppets you had all this beer popcorn and it just started smelling after a while and you're in there for seven weeks to quote you earlier it got too stuffy and there's not a lot of air in there i believe it sent anyone a little guani after yeah, a while but it works i mean you look at that sequence even now and you just sit back and go how the hell did they do most of this yeah but one of the earlier things about that period too was those those puppets had character a lot of these yeah, guys did. have believed out loud i've heard stan winston say it i've heard heard others say it if a, if a character doesn't have character, it doesn't work. Mm. So they spend a long time pioneering that, getting it right. Jim Henson was a big part of that with the Huge, Muppets and that. Yeah, about mm. getting characters out of these uh, hand puppets, have been, uh, pretty much he said. So I do believe, once again, it is it is um, trial by fire with a lot of this. Yeah. 
and I think a lot of them have used techniques later on from other on current movies that they like learned that off another film that didn't work on that film. Let's try it on this film. Yoda is the prime example of that. I can't look at Empire to this day without looking at that puppet and going, it still baffles me 40 yeah, plus years it. later. Yep. Free people, mm. you had one person operating the main puppet, which was Frank Oz, who also did the voice. You had someone w- working the the hands, and I believe someone was working the ears and the eyes at the same time as well. Wow. And that's why that film went over budget. They were, they went over budget because of Yoda. Yeah, right. Now it's the puppet. Yeah. Now, i got to mention one particular unsung guy of that period in England, a guy named Stuart Freeborn. Stuart did a lot of the original makeup effects and puppets of the original Star Wars movies, and I believe he did some of the stuff on Superman 1. He did um, Gene Hackman's ball cap that made him look like Lex Luthor. Oh. Now, one little thing that i got to quickly mention about makeup, a lot of the makeup effects guys have a big thing about lighting. And I'll yeah. give an example. Stuart Freeborn said to them, the one thing he learned about ball caps is you've got to paint them completely white. Now, when Gene Hackman saw it, he wasn't happy because he turned around and said, you're going to turn me into a ping pong ball. And he goes, <laughs> Gene, once the light's on you yeah. and in the dailies, I promise you it will work. Makes so that's sense. why in the original Superman movie, he's only bald in one sequence. Because oh. Gene was very worried about that. That's why he had the different wigs and the different hair looks for every scene. So there's that great scene when he does take the wig off. Yeah. And when Gene saw the dailies, he turned around and said, all right, it's working. So in the second movie, that's why he's a lot more bald because they figured out how to get that properly right. Yeah, refined it a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the other guy i got to quickly mention is going back to Rob Bottin. When they were working on John Carpenter's The Thing, Dean Cundy, the DP, specifically said, Rob had a very great way of doing these out there, unusual, grotesque characters but he was very afraid about the lighting. He always believed less was better. So Rob would always say, no, less light, less light. You don't want to see everything. So it's specifically with the body sequences in that movie, we don't get a really good look at them for that reason. Now, when he did Robocop a couple of years later with, with Paul Verhoeven, he did a similar thing. Was was He said, is there any way you can sort of not get a good look at Robo when we first see him? Is there some way you could sort of obscure him a bit and that was where that great sequence come from when he's walking behind the, the glasses oh yeah and yeah. that was rob and i i still remember that sequence to this day when you just hear the sound effects you yeah. turn around and there he is the behind. sound effects sort of make the image in your mind doesn't it like it puts it together But, um, yeah, that, that movie had incredible effects as well. I completely forgot about that one. Like the cybernetic organism type of thing. Half human, half robot. Rob was a big part of that. And um, he later worked with Paul Verhoeven, the director of Robocop on Total Recall. Now, the effects they did on that film, they didn't even get nominated for an Oscar. They won a special achievement Oscar because it broke all the categories about achievement at that time period. So that's another film that if I, you, anyone's interested in checking it out, I do recommend that one for checking out for this, um, the pioneering effects that he did of that. And um, Rob would later go work on uh, several films with David Fincher, including Seven, including Fight Club. I love all the Seven victims. That's all Rob. Um, the gluttony one still stands out as one of the most freaky ones of, for it for me, and that was him. And he also did the effects in Fight Club. And um, I... Love the fact of a lot of filmmakers that still like to use traditional effects. Now, Stan Winston, who I mentioned earlier, he directed his first directorial debut in the late 80s, and it was a horror film called Pumpkinhead. 
And it's one I do recommend you to check out. It's like a morality horror film. Well, he was directing, so he couldn't design the monsters. And what he did, and it's a lovely thing that he did, he gave his whole crew the job. He didn't tell them what to do or how to do it. He left it up to them. He said, I'm just going to be director on this one. You guys are going to do all the effects, and you guys are going to decide everything and run everything. Hmm. And that's why, if you read the credits of that movie, it's like six guys that get the credits for makeup effects on that movie. Okay. So that's one of those ones that you really can see when it's a team effort. And um, it um, it's worth checking out. And the same period of time, Stan worked on Monster Squad for Fred Decker. And to skirt the copyrights of the original Universal Monsters, they reinvented them for the 80s. And some of the effects they did on that one as well. It's just the uh, the Gilman effects for his suit is another one. I'm just like, he's like encased in that. And it just is it's really amazing that someone could get in and out of that the way they did, and some of the other effects as well. So to go back to one of Jay's favourite films, I have to mention Ghostbusters. Steve Johnson had worked under Rick Baker for a couple of years, and Ghostbusters was a film that was put together in literally two months. So to do the film at the time, there was only one makeup effects town uh, company in town. That was ILM, but ILM was too busy at the time working on one of the. I think, I think they were working on Temple of Doom at the time. So, Sony then Columbia put money together for Ghostbusters to form a special effects company, and they grabbed as many of the Lucas Arts and ILM crew as they could, and that became Boss Films. Steve had just come off working for Rick, so they hired Steve to do the makeup effects, and Steve's claim to fame is he designed Slimer. And I saw how they did that, and that's amazing. I thought he was just a hand puppet. It's actually a suit with a performer inside it. His head is actually inside um, Slimer's mouth, but he's bolted down, and they rotoscoped him then into the scenes, like the scene when he's flying around the chandelier. And then they just added over like that... um opacity like the yeah to make them look glowing yeah Yeah. so the other thing too is the there's other puppeteers to help the mouth and the tongue and and the arms they're all in black and they're in a black room and that's how they were able to do that they did similar effects on i think labyrinth with the puppets they did it the same way and i mean like i said at the time period there was not cg you had to use what you had to use so i mean there are many, many, many more movies that I could sit here and talk to all day about you many. and talk about my love of them <laughs> and the people behind them because I do believe even now that these guys don't get enough credit. I yeah. really do. A lot of them sadly uh, retired as a result of that. I believe Rob Team left the industry after 20 years because he wasn't getting respect from people for it. Mm. Um, they remade, oh, not remade, but did a sequel prequel to The Thing in 2011 and the thing that takes that thing doesn't work on one level it's all cg yeah they had hired two guys who worked under um stan winston in in the in the 80s uh uh, alec gillis and tom woodruff jr who worked on jumanji they worked on tremors they worked on death becomes her i believe they worked on the new it's and these guys had done a lot of effects practical effects and when they saw the finished version the producer had gone in and cgi'd over everything i think there's maybe two moments that are not and that's them and i just think it's a shame yeah, that that sort of movie works better with the real effects. And also, it, speaking of real effects, I couldn't see E.T. done fully CGI Ooh, these days. I yeah. couldn't see The Dark Crystal done that way these days, Labyrinth, any of those films. Yeah, and I think that's probably why there hasn't been remakes. Like, they've remade every film in history or done sequels. Like, E.T. just hasn't been touched, and it was blockbuster, you know? 
It's just because it doesn't work. It won't work with the new new tech. And also, I think some of the filmmakers have managed to hold on to the rights of some yeah. of these films. So Yeah, and rightly so. They don't want to see them desecrated. To give you an example of things, folks, Robert Zemeckis, who directed and co-wrote the original Back to Futures, owns the rights to it outright and has said out loud and stated, there will be no more sequels or remakes in my lifetime. Okay. I'm praying that that lasts over after he's left us. Mm. But there are some films out there I don't think you should remake. Absolutely. No, that's one of them. But um, one other film, just to quickly mention, is The Blob. Uh, we were talking about The Fly and we talked about the thing being the, the 80s, sort of 50s remakes. The Blob was another one that... I just think about the effects they they did that compared to the fifties, but it's sort of it's like a parasitic creature that eats its prey, and some of the melting effects in that are another one. And that film's another one where they use puppets, they use force perspective miniatures and um, appliances and that. And that's another one that I just sit back and I mean you can see you can see it's dated, but it's still one of those ones I'd still prefer to watch that over a sort of a fully CGI blob any day. Well, folks, I think we're running up uh, to the end of their show for today. I hope you've enjoyed me rattling on about one of my favourite subjects and people. It's been interesting. I've learned a lot. But if you do want to read up on this, I'm pretty sure you can find a lot of this online. And I do recommend documentaries on the subjects. That's where I get a lot of my information as well. But a lot of these people, like I said, they're sort of the young son of, of movie making. And I'm glad that a lot of sort of filmmaker buffs as of that are sort of the... Guys that were fans before they became filmmakers, a lot, a lot of them have come back into the industry now wanting to do traditional effects. And because of these kind of films, that's why. So I hope as long as there are people like that out there that the practical effects side of it will not fully die out. I do love CG when it's used correctly, but I do believe, like I said, it's a marriage. And I hope there are still people out there who do as well. So thank you for listening in. I'm Ben. And Jay signing out. We'll have speak to you again soon. Bye. Take care. Bye. Retro Guardians.